Let's open our Bibles to the book of James, if you will, please. The first chapter. We didn't quite finish the first chapter. We got almost through, but we didn't take up the last two verses. In our last section, we said that, that we would teach on blessing through doing. That was verses 21 through 27. And we just got down through verse 25. And we said in verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And then it goes on to show us the practical side of doing the things of God and being blessed through this doing. It says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So a man needs to be able to control his tongue, and a man certainly does not want to deceive his own heart in the religious realm. By the way, the word religion and religious is only used five times in the New Testament. None in the Old Testament. But between the two words, religion and religious, it's only used five times in the New Testament. Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 26, in verse 5, he says, he's speaking of his former life, he says, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion. So Paul refers to the, the Jewish religion, the straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and the Pharisee was the most straightest sect, sect of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish faith. So anyway, he refers to it there, and then there's a couple more times. So altogether, it's five times in the New Testament. We won't go into the, all the places. You'll find it. You, the word religion really means to rely upon. It's what you rely upon or trust in. Religion or relying upon a certain doctrine and of grace and of faith for you and I, and not our religious works and acts. But anyway, verse uh, 27, he says, James 1, verse 27 now, and it says in verse 27, Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. There are two very important things here. If you want your religion to be pure, you need to, first of all, visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That is, to be kind. The word visit doesn't necessarily mean just go to their house and sit down and talk. It means to visit them or to help them, communicate with them in their needs. It says God has visited his people. It doesn't mean that God came down and sat down in the chair and talked with us, but he visited us as far as our needs were concerned. The same thing applies to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. It doesn't mean you couldn't go in and sit down and talk with them, but it means to respond to their needs is what it has in view, in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now then, that's the separation part of the Christian life. If you're going to be pure in the sight of God, you have, the Bible uh, tells us, keep thyself pure. First Timothy, let me read a verse for you. In First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, Lay hands suddenly on no man, Paul is instructing Timothy, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. So it's telling him how to keep himself pure in the sight of God. Uh, there are passages of Scripture, a multiplied number of passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world. See, that relates to what we said in James 1. Keep himself unspotted from the world. Be not conformed to this world 
But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul says there in Romans, Do not be conformed to this world, nonconformity to the world. Separate the separation of the believer from the world. That doesn't mean the world of matter. It doesn't mean the physical world. It doesn't mean this earth. But separation from worldliness and ungodliness and people that do not live Christian lives. I uh, emphasize time and time again how important it is to remember what kind of company you keep, the kind of people you run around with. You're going to be influenced by them. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be influenced by them. A lot of folks say, well, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'm a good Christian. I'm a Christian. I live for God, and I can go out here and, and uh, rub shoulders with people in the world and do the same things they do. Well, if you do, you're going to end up doing more of the same things they do and less of the things that you ought to be doing. And the doctrine of separation needs to be taught. And if you uh, do not give heed to it, you're going to fall into some of the snares and traps of, of the devil that he's laid for you. The Bible teaches us a very strict rule concerning keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he says, And the world passeth away, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Obedience to the will of God. And you cannot be spotted with the world and be doing the will of God. A lot of people confuse the two. They say, Well, I'm in the will of God. Well, if you are, your life has got to add up to it too. Don't ever think that you can get out and live for the world or the flesh or the devil and think you're being and doing the will of God. These two just do not harmonize. And though you're saved by grace, as a Christian, you'll be a stumbling block if you live in the world. And there's no, no doubt about it. You, you can just ask the average person, the average that you meet, and if, if you ask them about a Christian's life, they'll say, well, they'll point out to the person's worldliness or his godliness, one or the other. They'll point out to one of the two things. they say, well, that seems to be a kind person, a loving person, a godly person. Or they'll say, well, yeah, he professes to be a Christian, but he lives out here, he does this and that and the other, and he point out all the other things he does. Now, which kind of influence are you going to have? Uh, Paul said, judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And it's only by the grace of God that any one of us do not become a stumbling block. So we need to guard ourselves and watch ourselves. And that's why... James says, I'm going to insist on this kind of religion that is a testimony to people. And he says, pure religion and undefiled before God now, before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now then, in our second chapter, I want you to notice some things. I gave you a division for the second chapter, but I think instead of uh, giving you the complete Division. I'll just give it to you as we come across the division itself. The first section of this second chapter is partiality through poor perspective. In other words, it depends upon how you look at people. And you can be partial by looking at them in the wrong way, by poor perspective, by not beholding as God would have you to behold them. And we'll read verses 1 through 4. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of person. For if they're coming to your assembly, and the word assembly, by the way, is a local called out assembly, the church. And do you know most of the times it would say, if they're coming to your church, 
because the same word that's said assembly here is translated most everywhere a hundred and something times as church in the New Testament. If they're coming to your assembly or if they're coming to the house of God or if they're coming to the church of God or if they're coming to your church, a man, look at this, with a gold ring in goodly apparel and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye then not partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? You're prejudiced. You're prejudiced on the basis of what? Of poverty or riches. Now then, we cannot judge people because of the kind of clothes they wear, whether they're real expensive clothes or just the ordinary thing. Certainly when you come to the house of God, you ought to be clean. Not talking about vile raiment in the sense that it would be like a fellow just a wallet out of a hog pen. It's not talking about it in that way, though that would still show respect to persons. Regardless, if you observe anything and you do not consider the person before God. Now, it doesn't mean that you should honor the man just because he's poor and despise the other man just because he's rich. That's a reverse situation, isn't it? I don't think you should... A discriminate in any sense of the word. And the Bible teaches that we should not be respecter of persons. You know, that's one thing I always object to about some of the preacher's fellowships we go to. If the preacher came in and he had a had a big church running 500 or 1,000 in Sunday school, and uh, he was able to put in $5,000 to the special funds that were needed for the fellowship, and for et cetera, et cetera, well then, brother, he was really well off. And the fellow back there that had a small church, well... He just didn't amount to anything. And that's the way it is. And you know that's the way it is in a lot of our churches. Whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. How does your church treat people according to the ability to give? It's not because a guy can give $100 or $200 or $10,000 that we look upon them. It's because they are Christians, they're children of God, and they give what God lays upon their heart. They give faithfully and consistently. And in our church, I hope we never discriminate on the basis of what a person's able to give to the services. We're thankful if God lays it on your heart to give $5. We're thankful if God lays it on your heart to be consistent in giving your tithe. We're thankful if God lays it upon your heart to be faithful in your giving. But you're never going to be judged because of the amount of it, as far as I'm concerned in this church. And it can be small or great. If it's given from the heart, it's just the same as the widow giving her two mites. And you know, Jesus said she put in more than all because she put in all of her living. Remember, I told you the story about D.L. Moody one time, I believe it was. The lady gave a big uh, offering to D.L. Moody, you know, for the meeting. And he says, well, Brother Moody, here's the widow's widow's, uh, mite. And he says, but lady, of course, it was like maybe a hundred dollar bill or more, I don't know, now she was wealthy. And, and he says, but, but lady, he says, uh, the widow gave two mites, so she kind of got a little irritated, and she reached in her pocket and got another one gave to her. And then he, uh, he thanked her, and he says, but lady, he says, uh, the widow gave all her living. And then that kind of rubbed her the wrong way, because it was not all. See, it doesn't make so much difference how much you give, it's how much you have left after you. She gave all her living. And so Jesus looked upon her as one that was willing to to give her all. And most of us do not do that, do we? But I'm thankful that we do not respect persons because of the amount that they give. And I don't want it to ever be that way in this church. We're thankful and we appreciate and we know that many give sacrificially. 
And sometimes it's more of a sacrifice for a person to, to give a small amount than some of these wealthy people to give a thousand dollars or five thousand or ten thousand to some uh, charity or some some of their churches that they do. It's more of a sacrifice to some of us to, to give what we give. But nevertheless, we know that the Bible teaches against, it, it shows partiality through poor perspective. We should see things as God sees them in those four verses. Now then, we want to see verses 5 through 7, repudiation through divine reason. Repudiation. Jesus repudiates such actions in verses 5 through 7. And let's read it. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? So he shows how that there is a difference of the way that people treat you and the way that uh, they try to use you. You know, a lot of people think because of their riches and their wealth, they can buy the other fellow and make him do exactly what they want to do. And in some instances, it's true. But, you know, I don't uh, want to be a person that can be bought, bought and sold. I want to... You know, you hear that song, I did it my way. When I get to glory, I hope that I can be, say I did it my way, and I hope my way is what God would have me to be. I hope it's His way, God's way. And that's what I pray for, that I'll do it according to God's will and God's way. And you know, not just the popular trend of everything that goes on in the religious world. I've heard some preachers try to put you in a mold and say, well, Preacher, you're supposed to do this, and you're supposed to do that, and you're supposed to do something else. I'm not supposed to do anything but what God tells me in His Word, and what God lays upon my heart. Not anything. He's given me full instructions right here. He tells me where to stand, what to believe, what to preach, where to come to conclusions and convictions, and I have them right here in His Word. Now, then, it doesn't mean that everyone sees things eye to eye. It doesn't mean that. Because we're not all going to be that, because we're all human beings, and we all see things a little differently. And uh, just like, uh, you know, it would be a sad world if there was just one kind of flavor of ice cream, wouldn't it? Some of you wouldn't like the other. What I like, you wouldn't like. What you'd like, I wouldn't like. So the Lord has given us a variety. Some have said variety is the spice of life, and I trust that it is in many, many instances. So it doesn't mean that we have to have to see everything exactly alike, but it does mean that according to our own convictions and our heart before God, we do things exactly like God gives us understanding and convictions about. And I can truthfully say tonight that as a preacher, I look into God's Word and I try to come to some conclusions, uh, teachings that I believe that the Word of God teaches. And it may cross uh, some membership, it may cross some fellowship lines, it may cross some Preachers that expect me to believe different according to their mold and their plan. And it may not agree with them at all. But I still do it what I think God is teaching me that, that this is the belief and this is the Word of God and this is the way it, it should be taught. And I try to stick to that plan in doing it. So when we look at this, it says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world? You know why God has chosen the poor of this world so many instances? Because they're rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him. Now then, let me give you this. It doesn't mean that just because a person is poor that God has chosen them. But usually the poor are more ready to receive the gospel than the wealthy. It just happens to be that way. 
The gospel is a message usually that the poor will receive uh, quicker than the most mighty and wealthy because a lot of them, Jesus says, how hardly are they that have riches entering the kingdom of God. Why is it? Because they let that stand between them and God. And it has a tendency to become their God, doesn't it? Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And he said, good master, what good thing may I do that to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. He wasn't saying he wasn't good, but he says, if you recognize that I'm good, you must recognize that I'm God. God manifests in the flesh. But he says, there's none good but one, that is God. And he says, now if you will be perfect, he says, you, you sell all that you have and give to the poor and take up your cross and follow me. The man says, I've kept all the law from my youth up. Jesus quoted the ones that relate to man, man's relationship to man. He didn't start out to the rich young ruler and say, thou shalt have no other gods before me, did he? He didn't start out that way. He started out, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not do this and that and the other. And he pointed out, thou shalt not bear false witness. And he pointed out the, the commandments of the ten that relate in man's relationship to man. And then what happened? He says, all of these I have observed from my youth up. I've kept from my youth up. He meant he had observed them. Now then, what happened? Jesus said, well, then if you'll be perfect, you sell all you have and give to the poor. Now this was getting pretty touchy, wasn't it? Because he had great possessions. You know, the Bible says this man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now what was the real crux of the matter? Did he love his neighbor as he loved himself? Was he willing to share it with someone else? You know, the Bible says, love thy neighbors as thyself. Well, then you're willing to share what you have. doesn't mean you should give everything away and throw it to the wind. And I don't believe Jesus expected him to do that and go, and go off in poverty himself. But he was putting him to the test to see if he really did want to follow him. Had the man been willing, I'm sure Jesus would have left him enough to live on. But he wasn't willing to do that. And because of the supreme test that he was put to, he went away sorrowful. Do you know the only person that ever went away from Jesus sorrowful was a man that was trying to be justified by his works and keeping the law? Have you ever thought about that? The others didn't go away sorrowful. The man that came to him that was blind, he didn't go away sorrowful. The poor beggar didn't go away sorrowful. Zacchaeus didn't go away sorrowful even though he was wealthy. And he was up in the sycamore tree and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. He came down. He came down from the tree as well as coming down from his position socially. And said, half my goods I'll give to the poor. If I've taken anything by false accusation, I'll restore them fourfold. Right? So, what I'm saying is, is that the rich are not to be uh, considered out of the kingdom just because they're rich. And the poor are not to be considered in the kingdom just because they're poor. But the, the poor are more uh, likely to receive the gospel. If you remember when Jesus preached his first sermon after the great temptation... In Luke chapter 4, it says there was given to him the scriptures, the roll, and he took and he found the place where it was written. And what did he read? He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, open the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Why? Because he was, he was then fulfilling that very prophecy of Isaiah. When he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You know, Isaiah didn't say it this way. Isaiah didn't say, the Spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, and he shall preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus read from Isaiah, 
and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It never was fulfilled till that time that Jesus read it. It was prophesied before then. But anyway, to preach the gospel to the poor. It says, Heirs of the kingdom, rich in faith. They're more likely to be rich in faith. God had chosen the poor of this world. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him. But ye have despised the poor. And He says, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Isn't that usually the case? The fellow that wants to bring a lawsuit has usually got more money. He's got enough money that He can draw you before the the judgment seats. He can uh, prosecute you. He can file a suit against you because he knows you don't have enough money to defend yourself in the first place. And he says, well, I'll win just on the basis of default. You know, you go out here and try to fight, fight the wealthy in the courts and see where you end up. Your money's going to, the lawyer's going to get all your money in a week's time and he's going to have money to just keep it on and he's going to win the case because he sticks it out and he's willing to pay. If it costs him $1,000 to beat you out of $200, he will pay the $1,000 to the lawyer. Cost him ten thousand dollars to beat you out of a thousand. He'd rather go that route than to pay you the thousand he owes you. So that's the way that works. And you're going to try to rake up everything you can to defend yourself. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? How many times do you see that to be true in society? Taking the name of the Lord in vain, time and time again. Now then, the next section is verse eight and nine. Judgment through the divine law. If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. By the way, the royal law is according to the scripture, isn't it? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. You're convicted of the law as transgressors. You know, Jesus... Uh, teaches us as well how to treat our neighbor and how to love others. In Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, I want you to listen to this. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, and we'll read these verses. Beginning with verse 37, notice what it says here. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Hello. That was love God, wasn't it? And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Think of that. On two commandments, loving God and loving your fellow man, hang all what? All the law and the prophets. Even the Ten Commandments hang on these two. The first four have relation to your love for God and your respect for God. And and having no other God before me, as God says, not making graven images. See? And the last six have to do with man's relationship to man. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Back in James, back in James, in verse 8 he says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. So that's what we're referring to. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. So then, fulfilling the royal law. This is the law for uh, those that are in the royal family. He's the king, right? Peter says, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Believers that are priests, and every believer is a priest in his own right. Now listen carefully. He says you're a royal priesthood. You belong to a kingly family. And every believer, not just preachers, and not just priests that are so-called ordained as such, which there's not any, 
That may shock some people too. <laughs> we are all priests in our own right as believers. I'm no more a priest than you are, but I am as much a priest as you are. I'm a priest in my own right as a believer. You're a priest in your own right as a believer. That's what Peter tells us. As believer, priest. So we go into the presence of God and we can function in a priestly capacity before God's throne. And so that's why you don't have, I don't have a little uh, booth up here and tell you to stand on the outside and tell me all your problems. And I stand on the inside and listen to you, right? Because you go directly to the throne of grace through the great high priest the Son of God, and you can go just as effective as I can go. And sometimes, many, many times, maybe much more effective in your own person before God. Now then, we can pray for one another, which the Bible teaches we should do as Christians. But you know, I can't forgive your sins. I can tell you who to go to to get them forgiven. I can tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and he's made the way open and plain for every one of his royal family. And so if you fulfill, back to this, the royal aspect of it, if you fulfill the royal law according to the uh, Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. He says what we've been talking about so far is respecting persons. You're sinning in doing this and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Then he goes on to show that you can be guilty through one offense, verses 10 through 13. Guilty through one offense. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, Let's say, whosoever shall keep all the Ten Commandments. Let's put it that way. The law is the Ten Commandments. And they can be used interchangeably. Now, we know there's more keeping the law than just the Ten Commandments because there were many things involved and explained wherein there were judgments because of certain transgressions. But basically, that's the root of it and the basis of it. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now look, now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now what's it say? So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. You're free from that law as far as its condemnation, right? For he shall have judgment without mercy, and uh, that hath shown no, showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now, let's stop there for a moment. We said guilty through one offense. Can you picture the law as a chain with ten links in it? And by this chain, you're suspended over a cliff, and there's a great abyss below, a great depth to fall, and maybe into the furnace. You're just held over this cliff by these, this link of ten chains. Uh, ten links of this one chain, which may re which rep represents the law. And you know, if you break all of them, if all these links are broken, you're sure to fall. If eight of them break, you're sure to fall. If five of them break, you're going to fall. But if only one of them breaks, you're going to fall. That's why the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we've all broken the law some way or another, and, and come short of the glory of God. And so the sinner resting in the works of the law is in a dangerous position because he's broken not only one point, but I'd say most all of them. And therefore, we fall into to chaos. We fall into destruction. We fall into a great judgment that would meet us where we're trying to be justified by the law. So what we say here is we're guilty through one offense. If one of those links were to break, fall down to death, right? And you'd fall to destruction. And we can certainly say that in all cases, then in every one of our cases, at least one link has been broken. 
and probably many more. We're not going to discuss how many of the commandments we broke. But there was a time we had other gods besides God. There was a time we thought ill of our neighbor the wrong thing. There's a time we did not love our neighbor. There's a time we've borne false witness. There's times we've broken various laws of God. And as a result, we needed Jesus to come and redeem us from the curse of the law, which he did. And the Bible says if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would Jesus have to have died if we could have been saved by keeping those uh, commandments? So we're guilty through one offense. Through one offense, we have become guilty of the law of God. We've broken that law. And therefore, judgment would fall upon us had it not been for the fact that Jesus bore the judgment and penalty of our sins in his own body on the tree. And it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, its judgment and penalty, having been made a curse or becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. And he bore the curse and penalty due our sins because of the broken law, and therefore you and I are made free. And Paul says in Galatians again, in the fifth chapter later on, verse 1, he says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't try to put yourself back under the law to try to justify yourself by it. But be thankful that Christ has redeemed you from it, and then live according to the spirit of liberty and the spirit of life that he's given you. And realize that probably before we die... Or maybe before the month is over, we'll break another one of the commandments. We'll try not to. We'll hope that we don't. But we probably will be guilty of something along the way. And then if we try to justify ourselves by whether or not we've kept the law of God or not, we'll condemn ourselves as the time goes on whenever we see that we've transgressed one of them. But if we'll walk in this new life, Romans 8, look. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Look at this. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, now look, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, I want you to get that, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now then, the flesh was what was weak. The law wasn't weak. It was weak through the flesh. In other words, it was, we have broken it. The, the flesh is transgressed as far as God's law. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was without sin. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So he, he came as, he took upon himself humanity, human nature, without the sinful part. And God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus became a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. If you have a marginal reference, for sin, it means a sacrifice for sin. Sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Look at that. That God's righteousness, the righteousness of the law, can be fulfilled in us because we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Someone says, well, how can I fulfill the righteousness of the law? By accepting Jesus who has died and paid the penalty for it and freed you from its curse and then walk in the new life according to the spirit of life which he has given you, and not be so mindful, worrying about all the things that you've come short, but rather live freely and openly before God, knowing that Jesus has already paid the full price, and he's justified you, hasn't he? And saved you, and therefore has redeemed you from the curse of the law. 
being made a curse for us. Back in the book of James, we said verses 10 through 13 was guilty through one offense. Now then, verses 14 through 20, salvation through the word of faith. Salvation through the word of faith, beginning with verse 14. It says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto uh, them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful uh, to the body, what does it profit? Is that going to help the man that's hungry? A brother or sister that's hungry if you don't give them something to eat? Or if you don't give them some clothes to put on their backs? Well, then you're professing that you love that brother and you do not give him anything for his help, right? And if you have that kind of an attitude, then your faith that you claim to have is, is just really not faith at all. Even so, he says, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And James says, well, if that's true... You know, a man may say, I have faith. Another one may say, well, I have works. And James answered to that situation. He says, you show me, show me thy faith without thy works, if you can. I don't believe you can. And he says, I will show thee my faith by my works. See? James says the proof is in the works. The proof is in the doing of the will of God. The proof that I have faith, if I'm going to show you any of that, I'm going to have to prove it by something I do. Now, you don't have to prove anything to God. God knows whether you have faith or not. And we're going to see that in the next section. We're going to see in verse 19, it says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Just to believe there is a God doesn't make you saved. Doesn't prove that you have faith. That kind of faith. The devil doesn't do the things of God, does he? The devils believe God. You remember the demons in the days of Jesus? What did they? They cried out, We know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Remember when they cried out? They said, Art thou come to torment us before the time? They knew that Jesus was the Son of God. But that wasn't enough to save them. Now then, verse 20. Here's the clarification. Verses 20 uh, through 26. Actually, 21, but we'll read verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that... That faith without works is dead. Now, what does it mean, faith without works is dead? Someone says, well, Paul and James contradict one another. No, they do not contradict one another. James says, show me your faith. Paul says, you can have faith before God and be justified before God by believing. Paul says, I want to know that you've got that faith. Now, God knows whether or not you've got it. Look, at, here's the clarification through illustration. Now, now, let's get this quickly. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Now, that was in Genesis chapter 22. Some 40 years later, after God said he had faith. But 40 years later, he proved that he had that faith by what he did. See? But he was already justified by faith. But it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? In other words, before men, in the sight of men, when he stood the test, and God put him to the test, it was proven that he had faith. Now look, I want to show you a reference. <clears throat> I already said that was in Genesis chapter 22 when he offered up Isaac. Now look, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture, now look, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, now look, Abraham believed God and was imputed unto him for righteousness. When did God say that? God said that to him 40 years before he offered up Isaac. 
So see, James and, and uh, Paul are not contradictory. James says, 40 years after God declared him righteous, he proved that he was righteous and he proved that he had, he proved that he had faith by offering up Isaac. That was his outward proof. But look back in Genesis 15, if you will. Let me give you this. Genesis 15, when God was speaking to Abraham, and this was 40 years before that incident that James points out, and so we're trying to say clarification of faith and works through this illustration of Abraham. And in Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham. In verse 5 and 6 is where we'll have to pinpoint our uh, lesson. He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now, he's speaking to Abraham, toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now look, God promised Abraham, he says, This is like the... Your seed, the stars of heaven. He looked at, says, look up at the stars. And he promised him Isaac. Through Isaac, this, this would be his, so shall I see be. Now look, I want you to look at this. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. When? Forty years before what James refers to. So why is James referring to Abraham's works? He's showing you the proof of it. But here... This man was justified before God 40 years before he did the works that James is speaking of. But James says, if you want to see the proof of Abraham's faith that he claims to have had, I can prove it 40 years later when he offers up Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis. You see the clarification? But right here, when God made this promise to Abraham and he believed God, in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, He believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. That he had faith. He believed in the Lord. Now back to James. Now look, clarification through illustration. And he uses Abraham for the illustration. Now then, in verse 22, it says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? What is James talking about? He says, Can you see can you see what Abraham did later on? You can see that he really did have faith and he proved it by his works. See, Paul says a man has faith. James says, I want to see it. James deals with the practical side of it. Paul deals with the factual side of it. That it's a fact that Abraham had faith. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 4 quickly. And our time is getting away. And this you must see, even if we go over time. You must see it in Romans chapter 4 for this reason. Romans 4. Paul brings up Abraham, the same illustration that, that uh, James is using. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by work, well, James says he was, right? When he offered up Isaac. But Paul says, No. Uh, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. He cannot glory before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's just what we've quoted to you from Genesis 15, 6. 